Attention, attention please, stand by for another episode of When Humanists Attack. Welcome to another episode of When Humanists Attack. Today, we have with us Rebel with a Cause, LaJaira Cooper, who has been an activist on the advisory council of SAGE, Senior Action in a Gay Environment, as well as on the board of directors of the Brooklyn Society for Ethical Culture. She's also a published author and has given, I don't even know how many speeches and addresses and interviews in her day. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Tell our audience something about you. I was born in New York City. I lived in Rockaway Beach for about the first 13 years of my life. So I got my love of the ocean from there. Went to Far Rockaway High School, which was a great school at the time I went. Had a mother who taught me that one is accountable for her actions. I remember getting ready to go into a store and this guy came along. I must have been about 12. This guy came along and touched me in the wrong place. And I had a bottle in my hand and I threw it at him and I missed him. But this cop saw the bottle and saw me and he dragged me home to my mother. That was not funny. And he, she said, and what did my child do? He said, she threw a bottle at a guy. So she looks at me and says, why did you throw the bottle at this kid? I said, because he touched me someplace he shouldn't have touched me. And my mother turned around and said, did you find the guy? <laughs> That's where I get my attitude from. I know you were a, a telefundraiser at one point. You've Well, I started out as a telephone operator at the YMCA on 34th Street, which no longer exists. Mm. I worked at the Institute of Management and Administration. My last job was at Covenant House as a telephone raiser. Tell us a bit more about your educational background. I know that's uh, pretty, pretty wide ranging. I went through high school, went to college on the discovery program, decided I didn't want to be a teacher and left school probably what we considered my junior year, I guess. I spent two years in Queensboro Community College, then went to Hunter, then dropped out. And eventually at the ripe old age of 69, I went back to school, got my bachelor's in creative writing and English, a master's in English and creative writing. And then just recently finished a bachelor's of science in criminal justice. What brought you to criminal justice and science? I think I'd been interested in it for some time, but there was an article that I read about two guys who had gotten married and the elder, elder guy died and the younger fella could not kill at social security. And it just started me to thinking about the misdignation laws. You couldn't get married, so you couldn't collect. Why are you telling me I can't collect Social Security now that I can get married? You've written how many novels at this point? I've written and published one. Okay. I've finished a second, and I'm working on a third. A third. And these are all 
mysteries, murder mysteries in that genre? Two are, the first one is Theft of Trust. I've just finished Theft of Honor, which are both murder mysteries, yeah. And then I did a speculative science fiction one called Charisma. It's about a planet where people go who escape Earth just as um, a despot is taking over the planet. What, what year did you start that one in? I actually started that maybe five or six years ago. Oh, you, you felt something was going on, huh? Now, you've said more than once that your mother brought you up to be a rebel. My mother was a very strange person. She was the kind of person who would wake me up at five o'clock in the morning to go out and see the sunrise. And at five, six, seven, eight, nine years old, you don't really appreciate it. Hmm. However, it does, being on the, being living at the ocean and going through those things gave me an appreciation and they tend to show up in my writing because it's always about water, sunrises, sunsets, those kinds of things. She taught me to be accountable. And one of the other things I guess she taught me is not to allow other people to describe, define who I am. Besides your mother, what thinkers, authors, philosophers, what, what do you consider to be the most important to your thinking? Now, that is a good question. I've read so many things. I think my writing style, I tend to go with J.D. Robb, who writes the In-Death series. Not Although my characters are similar, I started writing my characters before I read her books. My favorite author, though, is Octavia Butler. She wrote about all sorts of what we might consider strange relationships. She wasn't a dystopian writer, particularly. She did write about society and things that could happen, but it was more of the, if you continue doing things the way you're doing things, this is what could happen. It's been a long time since I've read any of her stuff, but uh, in terms of religion and philosophy, what's your, what's your background there? Oh, I went through all the religions I think I could have possibly gone through, except Catholicism. But my mother said, you must go to Sunday school. After mm. that, you don't have to do anything else. I went through Sunday mm. school and then um, living with my stepmother, I joined the Methodist church. I don't think I joined the Methodist church because I really wanted to join the Methodist church. I love the organist. She was um, a former jazz organist. So I could appreciate her making the church rock and make, watching the preacher get upset. And then I went to, <laughs> that's what happened. And Why then did I, the preacher get upset? Because she'd bring in that sort of rock thing. The church would actually be rocking. Methodist church is a rather staid. Uh, okay. And when she'd start playing, I would just laugh because I just love to hear her play. Martine A. Paul. I'll always remember that woman. Then I went to religious science, which taught religion more as a science than 
any particular religion because we looked at Buddhism, Judaism, Christianity. And so my theory about religion has been adopt and adapt. Interesting. It's very, uh, very similar to my attitude towards philosophy, uh, which in a lot of ways is what brought me to what I would call humanism a long time before I even had heard of the, uh, the word. Uh, now, do you currently describe yourself as a humanist? In looking at my writings and my characters, I would have to describe myself as a humanist. Here we are, 2020, worldwide demonstrations and riots and people, white people in America buying books on racism at record levels and new laws being passed and old ones being rolled back. In Colorado, I've read about here in New York State, that law that shields the public from the misconduct record of police officers has been rescinded. All of this going on. And it's going to be a complete surprise to a lot of the folks who are watching this and listening to this, that this is even still going on right now. In the words of uh, my aunt, who is 73 years old, you know, I can't believe I'm still having to get out and demonstrate about the same old shit. Why in the hell is it taking so long for Black Lives to Matter? I'm not sure that it's taken so long. I think what happened at this time was a perfect storm. You had COVID, you had people in a long time. People wanted to get out. Floyd's death gave them a reason to get out. And it's our Krakatoa. It's where things collided at the perfect time for this to happen. One of the things about Black Lives Matter that's different from the civil rights movement is there are no actual leaders. So in a sense, you can't go kill a leader mm. and kill a movement. Because if you remember in the 60s, everybody got killed. Every yeah. time you turned around, you know, it was Medgar Evers, Martin Luther King Jr., Malcolm X. Um, so when it killed the movement because you had no one who had the charisma, the energy to step up and step out. I think now with the young people, they're seeing that there is a time for change. It took so long because there was never, there was never a way to have a something that coalesced. The in other words, the, the perfect storm that you're talking about, which has a lot to do with other things 
that don't necessarily have anything to do directly with outrage or dissatisfaction with racism or race relations in the United States. And that, that makes sense to me. Sure. You know, there's always going to be a lot of factors in something that don't necessarily have to do directly with that thing. And even if it's something is, for lack of a better word, self-serving as just needing to get out of the house and needing a, a, a really good excuse to do that. Like, oh, well, I've got a great quarantine right now. It's for the greater good. At least putting that to good use. Well, you had the students and then you had people who weren't working. It was a, it's so much stuff going on, like you said, at the same time because you have all these people who are home because they were in quarantine. And then you have all these students who would normally have been getting ready for finals and they had nothing to do. So like you said, Floyd's death, and it was just, his death was so blatant. It was, I've heard it described as it was like a hunter standing there posing after he's killed an animal. Yeah, they really weren't expecting any consequences at all. None whatsoever. It was just shocking. Um, And I'm completely bewildered at the perspective of the people I know on the right wing of politics, that there is no difference between the rioters and the demonstrators. And that if I want the police held accountable to the rule of law, that that means that I'm anti-police. I, I, look, I'm, I've been to some of these demonstrations. I don't consider myself to be anti-police at all. I think that it's pro-police to expect that the police be held to the rule of law, for heaven's sakes. That's what they're supposed to be enforcing. That's what, that's what the only thing that gives them legi- legitimacy. I'll just flat out admit that in my own struggle, my own work for queer rights or LGBTQIA, RXZUVW rights or whatever it is we're calling it this decade, I've really been over-focused on that. I got kind of caught up in a pitfall of identity politics and really didn't pay much attention to a lot of the other stuff that was going on, even though I full well knew that it was going on my attitude has been, well, you know, I can only fight so many fights at once. So that's why I'm coming to you. I took my diversity master's class with my, during my English MA degree. And when I took that class, it was right when Trump was inaugurated. Ooh. And that's where I began to see a lot of the intersectionality that I had missed also. Because we haven't been taught that 
all of this stuff goes together. Climate change, health care, police brutality. This all is a, a part of a system of disenfranchisement. And I think people, it's like, you know, there's that old thing of the saying, when they came for you, I it wasn't yeah. you, it was you and it wasn't me. And by the time right. they got to me, there was no one else. I right. think that is where we were all, we were at that time. I said someplace in a paper I wrote, I remember reminding myself that one of the problems we had was you have groups get together and they petition or they protest. One group gets something and they drop out, not seeing the fact that all of this goes together. And I think that's where this time it's not true. Something I've learned the other day, I didn't know when John Lewis died, I had not realized that he had been for gay rights way before anybody else was while he was in really? Congress. Yeah. So well, when, yeah, and while people thought that that's a lost issue, it was more for him, a human issue. And I think this is where, if you look at the whole picture, I think this is partially where people have had a problem. They haven't seen how everything that may affect one group actually affects the society. If you have people have poor health care, then they're going to make other people sick. They're going to die here sooner. They're not going to be able around to pay taxes. If you have people who are undereducated, they're going to have low paying jobs. They're not going to pay more taxes. They're not going to be able to help their children. So it becomes a cycle and a circle where one affects the other. If you look at climate change and you say, well, the, the, what's going on, the carbon effect doesn't matter, then you're saying that those people who have comorbid c conditions should die because they will. It's a whole big parcel of stuff that I don't think we saw because we were busy fighting other fights. Not saying the other fights that we fought were wrong, just saying that at the time we were fighting them, that was our premier uh, interest. I don't think what my fight was was wrong. I just think it didn't go far enough. How is it that these right-wing people can't understand that the rule of law applying to everybody is a good thing for everybody. If I try to put myself into the mindset of the, um, one of these supporters of the current president, the only thing that makes any sense to me is that these folks don't understand that if they can put anybody's kids in cages, they can put your kids in cages. So you're not safe. They feel that it's safe. They are safe. So they don't care what happens, you know, to these 
brown people who are invading our country in caravans. It's Pastor Niemöller all over again, who, if I'm remembering correctly, died in a Nazi concentration camp. And uh, <laughs> that, that was a hard one lesson that he had to learn. Uh, it, it would have been a lot better for him, certainly, if he'd have known that a lot sooner. We don't know history. We have been so miseducated. As J Jane Elliott always says, educated means leading people out of ignorance. Our history has brainwashed us into believing that no one has done anything but pale fakes people. And if you remember that movie in the book that came out, Hidden Figures is a classic example of that. People are realizing that we're, as they keep saying about the COVID thing, we're all in this together. It's changed a lot of lives and it's gonna to continue to change a lot of lives. It'll be a while before we can ever get back to being able to be in large groups and not worry about getting sick. The silver lining is that it's highlighted an awful lot of the, the terrible weaknesses <clears throat> in our society because, you know, who wants, to, who wants to struggle for civil rights? Who wants to take on the powers that be? That's, you know, that's first of all, it's scary. And secondly, it's an awful lot of hard work. So I think the silver lining here is that we're being forced to face the situation. It, that I'll agree with. That, that, that's, that's the best I got, Lejaira. I, I don't have any other silver well, lining. I, Every, everything else is awful. It's all I just agree, awful. I do agree with that. It's not only the mountain blowing up at this time. It's the pandemic. It's the civil rights issue. And it's the person in the White House. Had the pandemic been handled differently, you probably would have still had the protests if George Floyd was killed, but you wouldn't have had two things going on at the same time. By having a person who cares more about profit than people, and people are beginning to realize this because they lost their jobs, they have no money, they can't pay their rent, their mortgage, their healthcare has gone down the tubes, I think has opened people's eyes to not so much that the mistake they made because they, what they believed at the time was what they believed. But if you don't think about what you're doing, if you b believe everything a person says, you'll get sold a bag of peanuts. Nobody changes until the pain of changing is less than the pain of staying the same. And right now, we just can't deny the pain of staying the same. Now, I've got some right-wing friends. These folks don't have anything. They got nothing except we can't change anything. We got to keep going. We do the same way we are because if anything changes, it's going to be worse. What I'm curious to see is how bad it's going to have to get before these people are going to open their eyes and wake up 
to the fact that no, it's not the poor people. No, it's not the black and brown and other racial people. It's the system. It's your beloved United States of America itself that is broken. Most of us fall into the same trap. I don't think we expected things to get this bad. We never expected a pandemic, but there were protocols for it, which were ignored. Right. We right. had the problem with uh, the police for years, but seeing Floyd's murder for the young people today was John Lewis's Emmett Till. It reminds us of the time when they were hosing Black folks for wanting to integrate, you know, lunch counters, buses, all that sort of stuff, and putting dogs on them. Young people may know a lot more than our older people because of technology. It's easier to find out answers. We didn't have that. It all goes back to money. Jackie Robinson made a great comment in his autobiography, I Never Had It Made. He says, money is America's God, and it always has been and it always will be. As Frederick Douglass says, nobody gives up power without a the demand. Right now, we're at that point where people of color, poor people, the disadvantaged of all sorts can get a lot of things done because there are pow is power in numbers. We need to get the Voters' Rights Act passed the way it was before it was gutted. We need to find a way to not have to shoot everybody you see. I understand that policing is a dangerous job, but I also understand that not everybody you run into is, the, is going to kill you. And if you shoot first, there's no reason to ask questions afterwards because you can kill the person. I'd like to see them get rid of mm. prosecutorial immunity. Remember the Central Park Five? Mm. Remember when, when they finally got exonerated, there was a lot of stuff that came out that the prosecutor had done. And the only thing she suffered from it was losing her book deal. But these guys lost 14 years of their life was watching the innocence files. And it was another case where a prosecutor and the co police collaborated and they kept information out. And this guy goes and spends, I don't know, 20, 30 years in jail for a crime he didn't commit. And the prosecutor was never held on uh, to account. And to top it off, she became a judge. It's about, oh, how many cases have you gotten convicted? How many arrests have you made? It's notches on your belt. What I find most interesting is that people in grand juries believe the cops are right. And it's very hard to get a cop indicted. Everybody always blames the prosecutor because there's no indictment. That's not necessarily true. I've sat on grand juries and I know that everybody who came through that grand jury who was a person of color, they indicted. I didn't indict them, but they did. And, but with a special grand jury, the question becomes, well, 
they must have done something wrong or they wouldn't have been arrested. Or they must have done something wrong or they wouldn't have been shot, which is not necessarily true. So educating people to understand the police aren't always right. We're supposed to be innocent until proven guilty. And if you notice, if you go think about trials, there's two things they say, guilty or not guilty. Not guilty does not make you innocent. Those are two different things. Education needs to be rehauled. We need to tell the truth and not have two different textbooks like California and Texas has. The only place I think black folks actually did matter and believe it or not, it was slavery because a slave was worth money. You were primarily not going to kill your slave. If they ran away too many times, you would just sell them for the South. So you still got money for them. But I don't think black lives, I don't think red lives, I don't even, I don't think poor white lives, I don't think immigrant lives have ever really mattered. Black Lives Matter is trying to build a conscience in people. I think that's what's been missing. It's this internal consciousness that, hey, something is wrong here. Everybody I keep hearing says, just uphold the Constitution. Get people out of office who should not be there. If they're doing something wrong, get them out. And I do think it is a Krakatoa kind of event. It exploded over the world. That's that's why I keep calling it the Krakatoa. When it blew up, you saw the dust in London. And the Krakatoa is in Indonesia with the Black Lives Matter. It blew up all over the world. I think a conscience of a nation is going to work because we always want to be perceived as the good guy, as for the underdog, as all the things that we have not been truthfully, but we've been perceived that way. One of the things that's also really interesting going through the Black Lives Matter protests is the killings keep going on. Yeah. It's, not that, it's not that people stop. Okay. This is bad. Let us stop doing this. No, we shoot a guy walking it's away still, from, from a car. How is shooting someone in the back lawful? There was a woman in Buffalo, an officer, who questioned something another officer did. And, she, and she's still trying to get her pension. But coming forward in Florida... When this lieutenant, 21 years on the force, and his officers turned him in. And he was fired. Why is it that cities must pay when a police officer does something wrong? Yeah. Yeah. Get rid of it. They yeah. need to be sued. They need to start losing their own damn money. What I've heard is suggested is that the money should be taken out of police uh, retirement funds. That's then, what I mean. then you'll get the police speaking up yeah. against 
the murderers and torturers and psychopaths among them. Maybe. And the other thing is having a national database so that a cop who gets fired in this county can walk across the street to another county and get hired. Yeah. You need to have a national database. So once you're fired, you're fired. A few years ago, I was walking up 6th Avenue and guys out there in their riot gear, I understand why you're there. I have no problems. Well, I do have a problem with it, but I understand why you're there. And I walked by and I went like this. And then I went like this, just sort of like, ugh. Said nothing to this officer. He decided to engage me and said something snarky. I said, first of all, I said nothing to you. Second of all, why did you say something to me? Leave me alone. And third of all, I understand why you're here. It does not mean I like it that we've gotten to this situation. Why did you even engage me in something when I didn't say anything to you? Of course, my people were telling me, come on, stop arguing. I said, I'm not arguing. I'm just making a statement. And I walked away. But it's an attitude. It's an attitude because they got on a uniform and they feel they can say anything and do anything they want. As the old Jewish saying goes, the fish always stinks from the head. The fact that the cops are still murdering people, even in the midst of all this, even with all these cameras going, even with a worldwide movement against racism and against brutality, on the behalf of the police, the fact that they're still murdering people makes me wonder whether or not the current generation of police is actually going to be able to make any kind of meaningful change. It starts at the top. It starts with a chief or a commissioner who says, I am not going to tolerate this. And there are chiefs that are doing this. Everybody says it's about getting Trump out of office. Well, yeah, that's true. But there's about two other things. It's really about taking over the Senate because in his time in office, he's already appointed 200 of the 800 elect uh, federal judges. Uh, yeah. Give him another four years and guess what will happen. Uh. I was watching Ring of Fire, I guess this morning. And the guy, I can't ever remember his name, but he was talking about Jonathan Swan, who asked Trump a question, which Trump never asked or answered, which he kept asking. And he said, that's what I appreciate about a good journalist is trying to get the answer to a question. And you're right. But I don't think also people think about what the person just said. You know, they're... They're just there. Okay, you didn't indict him. I don't, you know, I really don't care why you didn't indict him. And they don't really hear. We don't hear all the time what people say. Yeah. These prosecutors can say some outrageous things such as, well, the officers were performing their duties in a manner consistent with their training. And nobody will raise their hand and say, now, wait a minute. So you're 
you're saying that they're trained to fire blindly into an apartment through a curtain. Is that what you're saying? People just aren't paying attention. They get something that kind of sort of sounds authoritative and is more importantly than the actual words said in an authoritative tone of voice. And that's good enough for them. Let's break for lunch. One of the things that we are seeing is certain things are being gotten rid of. No knock warrants. Not having cameras. For me, having to see this stuff right in front of you, Facebook, Twitter, all over the place. And it doesn't have to come to me on the news. I can just see it from what somebody who is there who doesn't have a huge ax to grind because they're a paid lackey of some news organization. That's been a big plus. I'll bet they never thought that these cameras would wind up being used against them. That's something we've got to fight for too, is our right to record the actions of these people and make those recordings public. But those things are happening. It's just, those are not the things you hear about. It's just like, you hear about the 15% of black youth who are out there raising hell, but you don't hear about the 85% who are not. And you don't hear about the cops who are trying to do their jobs and are hampered. I'm sure there are police officers who see things that are wrong, but you've got to know your lieutenants and your sergeants. You've got to know whether if you report something, it's going, something's going to be done or are you going to be hung out to dry? Having commissions that report this stuff is wonderful, except it seems that nothing is done. This is the kind of time the Black Lives Matter explosion that has made people realize, hey, we have we have a problem. And there's nothing wrong with being pro-cop. It's being pro-authoritarian violence. I've had to explain this to more than one person. Hey, look, just because I want the police held to the rule of law does not mean that I am anti-cop. What about that is so difficult? Go read the oath your police officers take, and you tell me whether they're living up to it. The only reason that I know anything about this is growing up a queer kid in the 1970s in Queens, New York, and ha having it made very clear to me that the police would not investigate any violence done against queers if they themselves were not the people perpetrating the violence against the queers. Once that had been made clear to me, I understood very personally, viscerally, you know, existentially, that the police were not my friends. As a matter of fact, they were actively my enemies. And to the people who would say, well, that's just a few bad apples. 
uh, amidst them. Well, you know something, if you are a police officer and you know of your fellow police officers who have broken the law and you are not speaking out against that, there's a word for what you are. It's called an accomplice. We're getting close to the end of this particular episode of When Humanists Attack. Give me some ideas for how to go forward, because that's what I really need right now. If we're looking at Black Lives Matter issue, I think one thing is white people have to get out of the way. They have to not try to tell black people what they should be doing and listen to the issues that they have. And I think it's true for any group that has issues. Marginalized people, the people without health care, the people without jobs, the underemployed, the unemployed, listen first. There's nothing you can do until you really understand what the issues are. It's not just about getting jobs. It's about getting good jobs. There were plans at one time to do some major changes in the poverty level by getting special funding by training people on the use of computers. And this is when computers were very young and it was stopped. These are the kind of things that they need to do. People need to write letters, call their representatives, get together and figure out what they can do. And it depends a lot upon your age, your health, and we can all do some things. There's many ways to attack the many problems we have and no one way is going to work for everybody. Everybody that we know is doing what they can. People can do only as much as they can and only as much as they feel is important to them. People being silent is not a good idea. And as Audre Lorde said, your silence will not protect you. And as Larry Kramer said, silence equals death. And as Pastor Martin Niemöller said, I should have opened my freaking mouth sooner. So, Lajara, thank you very much for your time. You're today. welcome. Thank you very much, everybody, for joining us as we examine the question, why did it take so long for Black Lives to Matter? Please, if you like what we're up to, subscribe, hit the little ringy bell. We'll see you again on the next episode of When Humanists Attack. <laughs>